October 22, 2006, the Reverend Richard Helmer delivered this sermon at the Church of Our Savior in Mill Valley, California. In exploring the request of James and John in the 10th chapter of Mark, and the imagery of the suffering servant in the 53rd chapter of the book of the prophet Isaiah, he preaches about a family of owls, Japanese keigo, and our call as a Christian community of servants for a world in need. In the name of the one who calls us to serve. Amen. My dad's parents lived for many years in northern Michigan. And amongst their many hobbies, which of course included snowshoes, a little bit of boating, they lived on a lake that when it wasn't frozen over was fun to be on, and fishing, they were birders. As a gift for my 10th Christmas, my grandparents gave me the Golden Field Guide to Birds of North America. I still have it, and inside is a lovely inscription from them reflecting one of their most passionate avocations. It says, Dear Richard, Within these pages is a lifetime of joy and discovery. Now, my grandmother loved to tell stories, and amongst her many stories, of course, were stories about watching birds. And one of her favorites of those was the story of waking up one morning in northern Michigan and seeing a family of snowy owls perched on a power line in a neat row. The parents here, the next oldest here, and then down the line, bang, 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 bang. She always told it with this wonderful humor in her voice, this sense of wonder and astonishment. It's always given me pause to think, what was it about that that so touched her? But I realized this week that there's something about that family of owlets that taught her about who we are as people. That row of owlets, that pecking order. It's funny how language works, isn't it? Pecking order is really a birder's term, but we use it in a wider context. I think my grandmother saw in those owls a reflection of ourselves, an icon of the highly organized social structures that run throughout the natural world and also run, of course, throughout human history and society across the ages. A couple of years ago, when I was studying Japanese at Sokogakuen in San Francisco, one of my professors explained the hardship of attending social events in Japan. He said, if you get a group of Japanese strangers together in the same room and expect everyone to begin engaging in small talk, you risk being met with, well, a long, awkward silence. Very few dare to speak first. They might end up using the incorrect keigo, the honorific language of Japan. 
And a polite person in Japan assiduously avoids speaking down to someone who might be his or her senior or up to a peer or someone who might be his or her junior. And so the game begins with silence. Everyone sort of looks sideways. When the conversation finally begins to move, as tentative as it is, the first questions involve a coy and careful set of queries, as in, when did you graduate from university? Or, how long have you worked at this company? And then, once seniority, rank, and status are established, once the social hierarchy is discerned and the correct kago adopted by both sides, people begin to relax and the conversation can flow freely. Now in the United States, you show up to a party with friends and it's, hi, how are you? We're a little bit less careful, aren't we? And sometimes we're even a bit messy. There's no kego here. Because we pride ourselves on our democratic values. We appreciate people whether they are our friends or our pastors or our presidents who talk our language just as though they might be someone from next door or maybe from around the corner. Because we get a little bit uncomfortable about formalized pecking orders and we tend, at least at the surface, to have a cultural disdain for social hierarchy. And that brings me to think about being Episcopalian or part of any liturgical church. It's a little bit strange in America, isn't it? Because we tend to have pecking orders with the vestments and the processions and the privileged authority and getting up in pulpits. Well, let me put it this way. Here on Sunday morning at Church of Our Savior, we count ourselves blessed if 100 people show up. You head way south to Lake Forest and Saddleback Church, and thousands show up to listen to Rick Warren, who talks and writes like the guy next door. There's no big formal liturgy. And Rick likes to wear, in the church service no less, a nice tropical print with the top button undone. I don't mean to imply that we have ambitions of becoming Mill Valley's megachurch, although that's a nice thought. But it illustrates the point of how we Americans pride ourselves on being casual, democratic, and feeling as equal as possible in our discourse. And of course, the dark side of this democratizing culture is, of course, that it can and does cover the less savory realities of our nation, still stubbornly robust social order. That we are still very stratified, and yes, even Americans are arranged in a pecking order. All you have to do is head over the bridge to San Francisco. That great liberal enlightened Mecca of the West is among the most racially and socioeconomically segregated of all cities in this country. And even the neighborhood names betray the real order of society in San Francisco, right? Most of you know these by heart. It behooves one to live in Pacific Heights rather than the inner Richmond. Or you go high up on Nod Hill to find a nice place, or Twin Peaks, rather than the tough neighborhoods of the Bayview. And of course, for those of you who know it, you stick to the upper Fillmore rather than the lower Fillmore. I think you get the drift. 
It's this duplicity, quite frankly, that tends to get us in a bit of trouble if we're not careful. We even tend to have this duplicity in the church. I caught myself doing it the other week in a conversation with a colleague about pulpits and whether we should have them or not. My democratizing notions took over, and I tried to dismiss the hierarchical imagery that this piece of liturgical furniture that I step up into each Sunday. I shrugged my shoulders and said, well, it makes it easier for them to hear me. It's like, yeah, right, Richard, pull the other one. It has bells on it. Pecking orders are, by nature, quite human, aren't they? They're present everywhere on this small planet. There's a social order in ranking, whether we're talking about ants or honeybees, owls or elephants, chimps or people. So we have to give a little bit of credit to James and John in today's gospel for their brazen honesty. What could be more natural than to ask where they are in the pecking order of the apostles, and no less to ask for a special place in that pecking order. I imagine the others were annoyed at them, but not out of righteous indignation. James and John probably articulated the very human worry and desire, that question, just where do we stand? It was a question that the other apostles were simply too afraid to admit to Jesus. As we all know, even in the United States, we spend a great deal of energy and time trying to figure out where we stand on the social ladder, even when we say to others casually that we really don't care. Of course we do. Matters to us if we are thought of by others as decent and upright. We worry about getting ourselves or our children into the right schools or the right jobs. It matters to us whether or not we have enough to live up to our standard of comfort, and we pursue careers with that at least somewhere in the back of our minds. We have to admit that we expect to be recognized for our achievements in the workplace, in the school, or at home, or indeed at church. Because here we are ever tempted to be in the know about what's going on, or on the right committee or the right body, with a secret hope that we might have a leg up in the local ecclesiastical pecking order. James and John remind us that this is nothing new. It's in the cultural water everywhere. It's in our history. It's probably in our genes. Jesus understands this well. In the words of today's reading from the letter to the Hebrews, Christ sympathizes with this weakness which is one reason, at least, that James and John don't get tossed out of the community for being so obviously self-centered. And Jesus, knowing what's on the heart of the rest of the apostles and knowing how all this concern about pecking orders stands in the way of the gospel, chides all of them and us with the radical strangeness of the good news. That it's time for the pecking order game to end. That the social climbing we all participate in can no longer be the central priority of this new community, this new creation that Jesus is forming with his band of disciples.
Today's reading from the book of Isaiah underscores one of the earliest and central themes in the Christian community. An essential aspect of Christ's incarnation in our midst is as a servant. The suffering servant in Isaiah, while probably originally intended as a metaphor for ancient Israel, is so clearly for us an image of Christ, and with good reason. The authors of the Gospels leaned heavily on the images of Isaiah as they described Jesus' life, ministry, and passion. Today's Gospel speaks to right out of that tradition. Jesus demands that the pecking order be turned over on its head and that the greatest is not the one with the most prestige, the most stuff, or the most power, but the one who serves best. Yet we tend to stumble over this passage. Servant in our culture calls to mind household servants, slavery, a lack of dignity and independence, of lowliness. It even calls to mind that terrifying doormat that none of us wishes to become. And it calls to mind the shame that we all feel when we remember the times that we have been a doormat for others. The idea of servanthood simply offends our basic democratic notions of the way things ought to be. But keep in mind that Jesus was never a doormat. He stood up to the religious authorities who tried to lord it over him and others in his own day. He brazenly spoke the truth wherever it needed to be heard or articulated. He healed and proclaimed good news to everyone, rich and poor alike. And even when faced with the threat of the cross, he continued to confront the powers of his age and their hubris, refusing to blink even in the face of death. The servanthood to which God in Christ calls you and me is not one of passivity or submission. It's rather a commitment to radical love, inclusion, and the truth that is the word of God in our lives, living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword that cuts beneath all the games of pecking orders and power and binds together a community of justice, hope, and peace. It's a servanthood that forgets all the selfish clamor with which we are so often enraptured, and it demands an outpouring of our life so that others might live, and live abundantly. It's a servanthood that sets aside all pretense, where being polite is not a way of getting ahead, but a way of moving more deeply into transformative, nurturing relationships with other pilgrims in this journey called life. It's a servanthood that raises up the little child and visits the sick, gives lavishly to those in need, and hears first the desperate pleas of those who struggle. It's a servanthood that listens to the cries, joys, and patterns of the earth, the creatures around us, and our interdependence with the city dweller, the farmer, the owl, the tree, and the stars. And this is good news, indeed. So when the pecking orders of our world call you with their siren song, take heart. Jesus knows that game and speaks directly to it. 
It is not to social prestige that we are called, but to servanthood. The servanthood of the broken bread and the shared cup. The servanthood that recognizes our oneness in God and lovingly stands up to all the forces that try to tear us apart. We Christians are, at the end of the day, a new community of servants to a world in need and to each other, or we are nothing. And God earnestly wants to love that community of servants into being. When it is wounded, God sends healing. When it loses direction, God calls it back as a mother calls her children home. And when it dies, God, the maker and remaker of the cosmos, raises it from the dead into glorious life. And in this, I believe, is truly an eternal lifetime of joy and discovery. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon podcast from the Episcopal Church of Our Savior, Mill Valley, California. We strive to be a welcoming community for those seeking to deepen their relationship with God and a journey in faith with God's people through the breaking of bread and in service to others in Christ's name. You may reach us by phone at 415-388-1907 or through our website, OurSaviorMV.org. That's O-U-R-S-A-V-I-O-U-R, M-V for Mill Valley, dot org. We wish you God's peace, and we hope to be able to greet you in person very soon.